you know that we have four kids, four girls, and it probably wouldn't take you too long to figure out which kids are ours in a crowd. Um, there usually some similarities there, certain family traits that they possess. I'm sure there's differences. We see them occasionally here and there, but as they get older, the, the common theme with our kids is they're getting taller. Shocker, right? They're, the similarities there, their height, you know, I, I, I know uh, my girls will probably be hovering around six foot as they get all, I don't know, I'm guessing, but we, Katie and I would joke when Madeline was born that if she ever became my height, we would change her name to Olga. She doesn't like that possibility. Avery, Avery, she, she, she says to us that she grows every time she eats, and now we're beginning to believe that. Um, um, she, she might become taller than Madeline, actually, when it's all said and done. And, and Charlotte, she hasn't really started to grow. I don't think it's going to happen, but she loves to eat. Boy, that kid loves to eat. She'll finish her breakfast, then circle around the table and finish her sister's breakfast and see what else is left. And, you know, None of our girls possess an inside voice. Do you guys know what that is, right? You ever say that at your house? Inside voices, please. You know, they love to make their presence known. Madeline loves to meet people. She loves to talk to people. She, she has loved moving to this new neighborhood. She'll, she'll go out and talk to them and find out their names and things about them. She's, she's very seldomly shy. You know, all of our girls are very stubborn. They got that from their mom. <laughs> and they also love to be right, and they got that from me. You have any kids like that in your house? These family traits is what I'm saying here. These family things that identify, okay, yes, this is a marker. This is a distinguishment of of the family. So you see that and you say, oh, yeah, that's one of Coulter's kids. Uh, Family trait. In Romans 8, you can read it as Paul begins to unfold how salvation works and then why salvation happens. And in Romans 8, 29, what God does in his saving works to conform us into the image of his son, which means God's work in you and in me is about conforming us to look like and reflect God's glory as we see it in his son. And so God is shaping and molding all of us. And some of this shaping and molding is pleasant. Some of it's not. But all of us are in that process to be conformed to the pattern of Jesus Christ, the image of his son. He wants to make us like Jesus. And so there's certain traits then that identify us as believers that Jesus has, and that's what he desires for us. The traits that distinguish us from the rest of the world. And we would say, and people say, look, see, they're different. They're, they're a Christian. And we see that. They're part of a, a family that's outside of the normal world. And this sets up the stage of the passage here this morning. Jesus is bringing teaching to his disciples here to challenge them to consider what, what ministry should look like, what their lives should look like in this world. And what I want you to learn here this morning is what a healthy Christian is, and they are one who discerns and obeys God's will and is faithful in reaching out to their neighbors with the gospel. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 27 through 42 this morning, the verses there on the screen behind me. Follow with me as I read John 4, starting in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of man who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that, which, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
And he said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you join me in prayer? Father, we, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to come and to sit under your word. We ask, God, that you would teach us here this morning. God, I ask that you would speak through me, that people would hear you, that would see and understand from your words you speaking to them. I pray that you would teach us, that you would cause us, conform us into your son, that we would be different than the world in which we live. Pray, Father, as we, we look at this, the reversal of this Samaritan woman and the response that she has and help us to be challenged, encouraged. And as we see the reaction of the disciples and of Jesus to what's happening here in Samaria, may we be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. And Father, we, we rejoice this morning as we see the repentance of the Samaritans. They're turning away from themselves and their former ways to turn to you, to follow you. May we see that in the lives of those that we live around. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're gonna cover these verses and there's three points that I wanna highlight through these, this text here. The first is the reversal of the woman. And the second is the reaction of the disciples and Jesus. And third, the repentance of the Samaritans. So first, the reversal of the woman, verses 27 through 30. If you remember from last week, we're in the, the first part of John 4, and it was Jesus and disciples leaving and, and headed to Galilee, and, and they stop off to Samaria. And if you remember from last week, that as they were journeying, journeying walking, <clears throat> John writes and says that they had to stop there. It was God's will. It was not on the way. It was not the convenient way, but God desired that they stop there. And through Jesus, he sat down at the well and, and began to share with this woman. And it was all because of love, all because of the desire that Jesus has to, to minister. And so he engages, Jesus engages this woman at the well in conversation. And this is a social outcast, if you remember. She's caught in her, her sinful lifestyle of loving men and loving herself. And she's confronted with the good news that the Messiah is coming we end in verse 26 where Jesus, Jesus identifies himself to her as, as the Messiah. And we left off there that cliffhanger. And this is where we pick up because he says, you know, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the rescuer. And what does she do? Well, remember now in this setting, the disciples aren't there. This conversation was just one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus and the woman, they're off into town getting food and supplies for the journey. They're not there. So in verse 27, just then, his disciples come back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. So the disciples come back from shopping, you know, getting supplies, getting food, because they're a long journey, and they see Jesus, and he's, he's conversing with a, with a Samaritan and a woman, and they're shocked. Remember, this is an issue for the Jews. They're, they have nothing to do with these Samaritan people, so they're, they're, they're bewildered. They, they don't know what's happening, and, and John writes this. They, they don't speak these questions that John writes. John was there, so I wonder if these were the questions that were going through his heart and mind as he stood there and saw what was transpiring. But notice in the midst of the awkwardness of the woman who was, who was, remember, on the mission. She was there to get water at the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, to get water. She's no longer there. And what does she do? John writes, the woman left her jar and went away into town. She drops what she was doing. She now knows what is more important right now, and it's not getting water from this well. She sets aside her task to do a much greater task. And what does she do? John says she went away into town and said to the people, come, 
see a man who told me all that I ever did. This woman leaves her jar as if to say to Jesus, go ahead and use it. I don't need that water. I have living water. And now she's responding by saying, and I have to tell some about this. That empty jar to me shows the overall emptiness of this woman's prior life. J.C. Ryle says about this, he says, grace once introduced into the heart drives out old taste and interest. A converted person can no longer care for what he once cared for. A new tenant is in the house. A new pilot is at the helm. The whole world looks different. This is, this is monumental to the human soul to consider what she does here. She is leaving her formal lifestyle here. Think about it. This is a woman of low moral standards, a social outcast. She's ashamed of her past and her current life's decisions. And she purposely comes out at noon, remember? She comes out the hottest point of the day to avoid people so that she can get her water. She doesn't want to have the, the, the glaring looks from the townspeople. She wants to avoid the judgmental words that she would probably hear, the actions towards her that aren't kind. And now she leaves the jar behind. She didn't forget it. It's not like, oops, I left my wallet there. No, she leaves it behind. She no longer needs it. She has a changed heart, and we get to see evidence clearly of this change. She's no longer ashamed of her sinful lifestyle. She goes back and she blurts out, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Listen, real and true Christians publicly admit their sin. In fact, they delight to do so so that people can see the Savior. She doesn't, she doesn't glory in her sin. She is glorying in the Savior of her sin. She wants people to see Jesus. She's transparent. She says, come and see the Savior. He knows that I've been married five times. He knows that I'm with a man right now that's not my husband. He knows that I've been looking for love to fulfill this deep soul longing. He knows me. He really knows me. And she's emphatic to her fellow townspeople, come and see. You know, this harkens back to John chapter one when, when Philip is calling his brother to come and see. Come and see. You have questions? Come and see. The Samaritan woman has changed. She comes to the well at noonday secretly. She wants to get her errands done. She doesn't want to be bothered. And she encounters Jesus and everything's history. She's new. She's not the same woman any longer. And in her newness, she goes and calls for her fellow townspeople to come and see Jesus. Come and see this man. And, and, and then this hopeful statement, it's formed as a question, but it's really, you know, she's, she's proposing it to people to consider Jesus. Can, can this be the Christ? Folks, the one you're looking for, I just met him at the well. It's her way of asking a question of people to consider Jesus. I said this a number of weeks ago, but it's, it's one of the strongest ways that people come to Christ, and it's through word of mouth witness with Christians sharing with other people, people to come in contact with. And, and it's throughout Scripture. You cannot avoid it. Man is God's method. He chooses to use us to proclaim the good news. I mean, he could write it in the clouds, right? At any moment. And yet he chooses to use us. And you see it here. You see it in this text. He, he uses us, mere people to call others to see Christ as the answer. You know what happens in two weeks from today? We're having services here, just so you know. 8, 30, 11, 15. It's March 27th, two weeks from today, and it's Easter. It's, it is the, one of the most well-attended services in the country, usually. You know, right? People come to church when? Easter and Christmas. And we can say, well, how shameful that is in this culture. I want to instead leverage it. I want to leverage it. And realizing that your, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, those people you see around there are probably thinking, well, I better get a dress for little Susie. It's Easter. My little son needs a tie. I don't know what church to go into because I never go to church. What church am I going to go to? Wow. See, I got that covered because I have you guys. 
I want you to invite your friends. I want you to step out of your comfort zone and go into your neighborhood and invite your neighbors to Easter. And you might say to me, well, Jeff, I live a little ways away. I mean, I don't mind driving, but I don't wanna, I don't wanna inconvenience my neighbors that live 30 minutes away. Yes, please inconvenience them for the gospel. It'll be worth it. Because if they get saved, we'll get them plugged into a church up there. We're not competing. That's okay. Or maybe you say, well, I'm in a temporary housing, so I don't want to build a relationship with my neighbors. Really? Sorry, I've used that excuse a few times. Or maybe you say, well, I'm not either of those. I've lived in my house for 20 years, and I haven't met my neighbors yet. Well, I know that it might be embarrassing. And maybe you struggle because you think, all these thoughts of uh, now I have to go and I have to sheepishly say, I'm sorry, I haven't met you yet. And I know we've lived next door to each other for 10 years. And I know we wave when we take out the garbage. But I have something really important I want to say. You know, they won't care. They will not care one bit about that if they hear the gospel and if they respond in faith. They're not going to come back and say, how dare you not tell me? They're not going to. You know why? Because they're going to leave their former life of lostness because they're now found. So here's what we're going to do. I have, I have my team on this, okay? And, and I'm going to embarrass her now just because I can. But Michelle Damone, and raise your hand, Michelle. All this graphics you see, Michelle's been pouring in all of volunteer time. So she's designed this bulletin insert that we're going to have, and we're going to have it ready for next week. And in the bulletin, every bulletin, we're going to have four copies, okay? And the reason is, is not because we don't know how to count. It's because I want those four copies to be handed out. Every single one of us, pastors, elders, all of us. I want every person to have a bulletin, every person to have those. And I want you to go out in your neighborhood. I want you to find the coworker that you need to, to say, here, come to Easter, I, family and friends, I, I want all of those dispersed. And we're going to have a stack of them ready. In the, if you say four is not enough, and you may say, why four? Is there a spiritual number? Nope, I just chose four. If you want 20, that's fine with me. We'll make sure we have enough copies. And the point of all of this is that we are reaching out. We're, we're sharing with people. And really, all of it stems back from these words that the Samaritan woman says that convicted my heart, and she says to the townspeople, come and see. So I'm not saying go, if God's gifted you to go and have a, a theological discussion with your coworker, please, by all means, do. But I'm not saying you necessarily have to do that. I'm saying take the insert and say to them, come and see. And I, I'm gonna guarantee you something, folks. The gospel will be preached here. We're gonna look at John chapter 20. We're gonna look at the doubter. We're gonna look at Thomas as he doubts and ask to see Jesus face to face. And we're gonna unpack that. And the gospel will be preached. And my, my hope, my encouragement for us as a church family is that we, we reach out. We say to, as the same as this woman does, come and see. And I don't know what God's gonna do. But in verse 30 here, in this passage this morning, is, as she says this, what is the response of the townspeople? They went out of town and were coming to him. They were invited to come and see the one who changed this woman, and they respond. And so John is transitioning the story to guide our attention to what is about to happen. The woman goes and tells others, and they're coming. They're curious. Who is this Jesus? Because if, if he could cause this woman to be changed, well, this really might be the Messiah then. I need to come. I need to come meet him. And so we see the reversal of the woman. Next thing is the reaction of the disciples and Jesus. What, is, what does Jesus do as this unfolds before his eyes? You know, he's excited to see the woman's response of faith and then her resulting action to go and tell. But it seems to hit a brick wall with the disciples. You know, we tend to forget that some of the, the main opposition that Jesus faced, I shouldn't say main, but a lot of opposition that Jesus faced in ministry is from the guys that spend every single day with them for two years straight. You know, they're just, they're combative to them in some ways. They just don't get it. They don't understand what's about to happen. 
And, and so they want to take care of him. And you see that there in verse 31. He says, they respond to him, Rabbi, eat. In verse 32, he says to him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Sound like he has a secret pantry with goodies. And the disciples say to him, has anyone brought him something to eat? Can you imagine the conversation there? Did you bring him bread? I mean, we have fish. Did you give it to him? Where did he get the food? Did he slip out and go to the town to get food while we weren't looking? You know, they don't, they don't at this point understand what's going on. And as they're stuck on stupid, Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of man, of him, excuse me, who sent me to accomplish his work. That is the food he's talking about. So he's saying to them, he's saying, guys, listen, I'm going to explicitly teach you why I am here. I didn't, Jesus didn't come in the world for his own benefit only. He comes to preach, to live, to teach for our benefit. And he's saying, I have food that you have no knowledge of. My job, my food is to obey the Father and to do his work. You know what's more important than eating? Obeying God. His first priority is to obey God. Is that what our first priority is? Is, is obeying his will for our life, even up there in the top 10 daily thoughts? Are you willing to forsake the good for the great if the Lord would have you do it? You know, for many here, we pray for clear direction and want to serve the Lord, saying things like, we desire to be following the will of the Lord, but when the rubber meets the road, we neglect to realize how difficult it is to say no to ourselves and yes to what God has for us. I believe that we know little about our own will and motivation and how comfortable we are to follow our own direction until we are finally confronted with God's will for our life. And then to come and understand how opposed we are to that in our flesh. And we, and we pray and we ask God to give us clear understanding of his will and then we go and do it half-heartedly. And we're often like the child at Christmas, excited to get their gifts. And when they open their present and see that it's socks, they say, thank you, mom and dad, for the socks. I've always wanted socks, but not very much. You know, we say the words, but the heart's not there. And so we say to God, thank you, God. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for your direction. Thank you for, for clear understanding of your will in my life. I always wanted to know this but not very much. I pray that we will live lives with full surrender. And we can say, God, all that I have is yours. You gave it all to me. And we can say the same thing as Jesus, that God, my food is to do the will of of you who sent me so that I could accomplish your work here on earth. I was convicted of this same thing in my life this week, and I don't want you to ever think that sitting down to prepare a sermon doesn't affect the preacher, because it does. Some of the hard work is, is allowing God to work in my heart so that I can share what God's word says and what it's done in my life. And, and there's one area, one particular, that God's continuing to work on my heart. Now, I was in the garage, let me tell you, just to give you this illustration and understanding. I was in the garage this week, after Sunday, admiring my handiwork. I've started woodworking a little bit. I shouldn't say woodworking. I take boards and put screws in them. Is that woodworking? <clears throat> I think so. So I built this shelf for all the stuff, 10 foot long, 6 foot high. And just it's sturdy, you know, I was like, this is, you know, nice. And so I'm in the garage, and, and it was an evening, and I think it was Tuesday night, and so I said to Katie as she was getting stuff done, hey, the girls come out outside, open the garage door, I'll do this stuff, they can play, and Katie can take care of some things that she needed to take care of. So as I'm working, and the girls are playing in the garage, in the driveway, I can hear voices in my, uh, out, in, out in the cul-de-sac we live. Our drive is real short. And I know it's my neighbors. And they seem to be mulling around. And they're out there with their kids, and their kids are playing. And you know what my first thought was? 
not right now. I need to organize this. Even shame to say that. God in his grace gently reminds me of what I just preached three days earlier. So see, when I preach a sermon, I don't stop at 1230. Most preachers this way, I continue to preach it to myself throughout the week because it's been on my heart the whole week. And God convicts me in that moment and says to me, not in an audible voice, don't get nervous. Jeff, are you willing to be inconvenienced for others to know the gospel? I like to plan, guys. I just, I'm built that way. So my excuse could be like, I just, I need to get this done. I have only so many hours. And God just stops in my tracks. And I realize I need to stop what I'm doing right now and go out and talk to my neighbors. And thankful for God's work in my life meeting Marco and his wife and their two kids and Amy and her husband and three kids and Molly and Marcel and their son. And they're right there. They're in, they're in front of my house, 10 feet from me. And I almost gave it up to take care of boxes. I don't say this in a way to praise, please don't. I, I was ashamed. And they're talking and they're asking me questions since we're new in the neighborhood. They want to know about me and they're asking me questions. I don't have to even start the conversation. It's like God's saying, here is a big, fat, juicy softball. You know, can I hit it? And I almost gave it up to deal with boxes. And then get this, because God's not done working on me. It happens again yesterday. And here I am, I'm working in my garage on a project that's for church. So therefore, I have an excuse, right? I want to get this done. And again, God brings them out there. And Katie comes out and says, our neighbors are out there. I love my wife. I'm being able to stop and, and go out there even for a minute and to say hello, you know, to get to know and meet another neighbor I haven't met yet. You know, God's not done with me. Folks, he's not done with you. And, and one thing that you can learn throughout this whole section, we've been going at it for four weeks now, right? You know, I preached a message on evangelism. And Dave Brown challenges again with evangelism. And then the last week, we had another story in evangelism. And again this week. So maybe God's trying to tell us all something. He's not done with us. And our job is not done. And so I say all this again and tying it back in here because it reminds me again and again, why am I here? He says in verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months that comes, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And Jesus is talking to the disciples, standing right in front of him, and he says, look, open your eyes. And, and usually, you know, this, this comes about in this passage, is preached in a missions conference, it's a great passage, and we say, well, you have a nice picture on the screen of the harvest field, because that's what he's just using here. I, I don't actually believe that's what he's thinking at all. I think Jesus is being much more clear because he has to with these disciples. And he has to with me. And he's saying, turn around, open your eyes, because who is coming in verse 30? You can look down if you want. Who's coming in verse 30? The Samaritans, the town people, they're coming. And he uses this illustration, you know, again, on the food thing. They're the one that started it, so Jesus takes it again. He says, they're coming towards him. You know, I found it interesting as I was studying this week that it was customary for Samaritans to wear white clothes. Well, that makes more sense now. You imagine the, the distinction that would have been coming from the town and the backdrop of the green fields and seeing white coming towards them. And maybe there were fields there. Maybe that, I don't know. I, I'm speculation of what Jesus really meant. I'll ask him in heaven. But regardless, the point is clear spiritually that those were coming to be saved. And so the point for the disciples is not to have their eyes fixed on, on, on the stuff, on, the, on what's going on in the circle. It, literally, they're fixed on lunch, okay? Most teenage boys only think about food, right? Parents that are poor now. These, these disciples are fixed on food. Jesus, you have to be tired. You have to be hungry. And Jesus is saying, stop. Stop thinking about food. 
And he uses this local proverb that disciples would have been familiar with. You plant, you water, in four months the seed germinates and grows, and then it's ready for harvest. And he's saying, look, pay attention, fix your eyes on what's about to happen. Look what's going to happen. What were the disciples going to do? Were they going to listen to Jesus, understand the responsibility in this world to harvest those that are coming to faith? Or were they going to go back and worry about lunch? Jesus says to them, you just left this town, guys. You went in there to do business, to get shopping and get food, get supplies. But that's not the biggest thing that's going to happen. You may have been worried about food, but there's a harvest coming from these people. What's the point? Why, what is Jesus saying? Why does he bring in the proverb back to this conversation? He wants to inform them that even though it's physically true that it might take four months from seed planting to harvesting, God does not necessarily work on that timetable. He doesn't have to wait four months. Yes, harvest comes and those period of times, and that makes sense and it has to, but he's bringing it anyways a lot quicker than they can imagine. And what Jesus is teaching the disciples at this moment is that, they, that he has been sent on a mission. It's not to come and establish a military. It's not to come establish a worldly kingship. He has come to rescue souls. And so much of our time and our eyes were focused on other things. Church people, you know who I'm talking to. Those of us spent years in church services, I want to challenge you this morning. Don't allow the task to overtake the task giver. We do the work of ministry because of the one who gave us the task, because we love the task giver. We don't do it for the task. We serve the master. We don't serve the service. I read the following excerpt, a story from John Piper this week about William Wilberforce, the British Christian politician who labored uh, about 200 years ago to overthrow the slave trade in Britain. And the story illustrates what happens in your relationships with people when you see the world the way Jesus sees it. And Wilberforce was surrounded by people who were hardened to personal faith in Christ by the formalities of their churches and the nominal Christian boarding schools they went to. But his way of thinking and looking at the world was, was that they were in great need of personal faith as Christ is their Savior and a personal walk and allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so he, he would keep a list of people that he was talking to about vital religious and personal faith issues and ideas he would write next to and how to approach them the next time he would come in contact. And he would often spend an hour following dinner thinking of how he might develop what he called launchers. I just found this fascinating and incredible. He would write this down and the launchers for him were things that would open up conversation with friends as to launch into conversations about God. Isn't that remarkable? So simple, and yet we, we miss it because we're talking about food. One of the entries in his journal says this. It says, Mr. S. and Mrs. He writes this, what books are they reading? I need to give them good ones. Walker's sermons. I need to call on Mrs. S and talk a little. Lend her Venn's last sermon. Education of church children to inquire about, to pray about. They're coming this Sunday to church to hear Venn preach. I need to call often and be kind. This is what he kept. This is, this is what he wrote of people he had contact with. Often, this is another story. He said, once, this is a story that goes back for his communication with others. One story, uh, after talking some time to an ill friend, Lord N. Wilberforce was aware that he had not broached the issue of religion. Another friend came in and asked the invalid how he was, and Lord N. replied, as well as I can be, with Wilberforce sitting here and telling me I'm going to hell. So here is a world-class statesman of the British Parliament who labored for decades in a frustrating secular business of politics to overcome the slave trade in Great Britain, taking time with a friend to warn him about the reality that he would have never seen except that he learned from Jesus to see the world in a totally new and different way. Most of you 
this morning work and you live around the same type of people. They're not just casually opposed to Christianity. They are willfully opposed. Some are angry. And is your response, I don't want to talk to them, or I don't know how to talk to them, so I'm going to ignore them. Or the challenge should be is that we do the same as Wilberforce. And the greater Seattle area is not Christian. So what are we doing to push back the darkness? You know, there's a reason why we chose the, the title for the missions conference a couple weeks ago, Piercing the Darkness, because that's our job as believers. We are lights. So I want to encourage you to spend this week to, to list out every single person you have a contact with and then to write out those that, that are not believers, write out launchers. I think it's a great term. Ways that you can engage in them. Ways that you're going to be praying for them. Thinking outside the box. And, and feel free to come to me with ideas. I would love to say, hey, Je Pastor Jeff, I need some help. I would love to sit down, brainstorm, pray about this issue. Our job is not done yet. So John continues here. And he talks about this. He gets into verse 36 and onwards about those that have the, the privilege of planting seeds. Those that then can water that. And, and is instructing the disciples of what their job will be. And he said there will be planters and harvesters. And Jesus says in verse 36, he says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. There's, so there's two types of people that he's saying here. The people involved in the process of someone coming to faith. There are those that are sowers and those that are reapers. The sower is the one who, who plants the seed, who waters the seed, who, who works there hoping for growth, to bring change. And then there's the one who's the reaper, the one that comes alongside. And as you write out your list of people you have engagement with, some of it's going to be sowing of it. Some of it will fall in your lap as someone that's going to reap a harvest because someone else had did it. And as you walk in faith with the Lord, you'll float between these two types of responsibilities. You either sow the word of God in the hearts of people, causing them to pause and to think deeply about their need for Jesus, and there'll be times where you come along and someone who's already been witnessed to, already been prayed for, already considered Jesus Christ, they're ready. God has done the work and they, they're saved. And you get the, the joy of coming alongside someone else's labor in that. You get to experience the, the joy of harvest. One thought, though, hit me in the midst of this. One that, that hits home out, outside of the, the normal, outside of the world framework. Because I know there's a group of people here that I don't want to feel guilty because of their job. And the job I'm thinking of is those of mothers. Because there's mothers here that are home. And they think, I would love to leave my kids and go out and meet my neighbors. But if I leave them, I'll get in trouble. Moms, I want you to hear me for a few minutes. Because your influence in your kids' lives is, is incredibly important. The mother is, is likely the first influence in a child's life for Christ. And most mothers will spend the majority of hours, hundreds and thousands of hours with their child up to the age of five and whatever time they go to school or, or begin homeschooling. And your influence in displaying Christ to them is crucial. And I want to encourage you to keep doing it. Please don't ever feel like this is a, a, a worthless activity. It's not. Don't, and, and I want to encourage you and even challenge you, mothers, don't get caught up teaching your child all of the secondary things of life and forgetting the primary. There have been too many parents that have sat across the table from me and in conversations throughout the years of ministry that mourn over the lost opportunities that they have with their kids. And, and I recognize we have young kids. There's a lot of things 
that your kids need to learn. And sometimes it can be daunting to think through all of it. But if they grow up to neglect God, to fail to recognize him, to place their entire faith in him, it won't matter if they can brush their teeth well or if they can change their clothes or ride a bike or make friends well or play in a travel sports team. It won't matter. It will all quickly fade away when they stand before God as holy judge instead of holy father. Doesn't mean we neglect all that stuff. Doesn't mean we say, well, I'm not gonna teach them how to dress themselves. Please do. Teachers appreciate that. But don't place that in the primary. So I wanna encourage you, moms, give baths for the glory of God. Talk about who Christ is. Don't waste that time. And I know it's chaos. I know it's just screeching in our bathtub. Talk about the noise. Moms, make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to the glory of God. You know, display Christ-like humility when you give up what you really want to do to come into the kitchen and to spread out the condiments on the, pa- on the bread and then cut it in triangles because they really want triangles and not squares and do it for the glory of God. Parents, moms, drive your kids to piano recitals, school functions, sports practices for the glory of God. Don't waste those precious moments in the car. Ask them about what their favorite thing about God is. Dialogue about what they learned in Sunday school. Ask them what they look forward to most in heaven. And most importantly, pray for them while they are present. Show that to them. Don't just say, I pray for you, but do it right in front of them. Mothers that are here, and future mothers for that matter, you are prized, you are valued, you are precious in the sight of God. And fathers, I want to speak to you for a minute. Don't neglect to say how much you appreciate your wives and their work as they serve you and your family. You would be nowhere without the woman that God gave you. Cherish her, serve her, encourage her, and most importantly, pray for her. There are many fathers here, and how this ties in, okay? Maybe you're wondering how this ties in, but there are many fathers here that will reap the harvest of their children's faith because of the mom sowing God's word. And I kind of feel like we're cheating there as dads. You know, the hours that my wife spends with my kids, I'll come alongside at some point after all the work that she's done to come and reap the harvest. So fathers, don't, don't forget that. Don't forget their service. Encourage them. Pray for them. Jesus encourages the disciples here to be involved in this. Not, not just waiting, but being ready and available at any time to reap the harvest because God has worked. And the harvest is coming. So we've seen the reversal of the woman. We've seen the reaction of the disciples in Jesus. And alas, is the repentance of the Samaritans. What's, what's the end result? What happens through this, this dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman? She is made new. In verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Wow. And many Samaritans from that town come. They come from the same town the disciples just left. I find it shameful that none of them come because the disciples go into town and say, hey, come see Jesus. But because of the woman's testimony, they come because of the witness of this one, this social outcast, now turned evangelist. And their salvation reveals the great fact that motivates our evangelistic witness, and it's that simply Jesus is the savior of the world. Do you realize this? Genuinely, do you realize this? Do you realize that when you talk to people that Jesus is the savior 
of them. That there is no other savior of their soul. There is no one else that can save them. I firmly believe that a doctor can can save someone from disease. I believe that an employer can save someone from poverty. But what about death? What about God's judgment for our sin? What about the eternity that, that awaits people after this life? Jesus is the only one who can save us from sin, from death, from God's just wrath. And what kind of love of it is it to, to know Jesus, to know of his saving work in our lives, and then we fail to tell anyone? I believe that all of us can risk the embarrassment and inconvenience to tell people that we have found the Savior. We should not hoard the gospel to ourselves. We, we go and share like the woman. We go and share that God is holy. And because he's holy, he cannot be around sin. And man, man is not holy. Man has sinned. We have turned away from a righteous God. But God, God sent his son as savior into the world, into the cosmos to save the world, to save humanity. And now we have the choice, either stay in sin or confess your sin and follow the Savior. And, and I pray that we, all of us, will be engaged in this, that we'll go and preach and share with those that we live and work around. That we'll call them, come, come and see. I stated earlier, I know we've, I've challenged and we've, We've had this theme the last four weeks, but I want you to know something. All week, I am praying for you. And some of you I pray for by name. Some of you, I don't know your name really well, which is another reason why I want you to put your name and your picture on the church online so that I can see your face. And so if I ask you your name after the service, please don't be offended. I'm really bad at that. I'm trying to get better. But I want to pray for you by name. It is, it is my privilege as a shepherd to do this. I count it a privilege to pray for the church. And I want to tell you what I'm praying. I'm praying that God would move in your heart. I'm praying that, that he will be transforming you into the likeness of his son. I am praying that God would, would do what I know I can't do. I mean, I can try to persuade you every week. I could even try guilt manipulation. It doesn't work. I could try to motivate you on Sundays. But it's only through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, that will bring change into your life. He is the only one that can transform the heart of man. I cannot do that. The Holy Spirit has to do that. And folks, just so you know, I'm going to be a slave to the text which means for you that I'm going to say things that are going to make you squirm and maybe make you upset. Sometimes I will say it softly. And other times I'm going to convey it very loudly. And I'm going to go after these areas where I see our church body needs work, where we need growth. And I'm going to do this because I feel the weight of accountability that I will give to the Lord when I stand before him. And I desire to stand before God one day and say, God, I preached your word as you wrote it. I, I didn't see it, God, as a code to be, to be broken and understood. I, I saw it as the word that needs to be declared. And I do that because we're a Bible church. It's in our name. It's who we are. It's in our DNA. We hold a high value on God's word. It's why we sing songs that come out of the Bible. Right, Joe? Every week. That's why we do it. We, we, we're trying to proclaim together the glory and goodness of our God. And we're going to do that week in and week out until Jesus comes back to get us. We gather to glorify and make much of Jesus. We gather to worship and, and the Father, remember, the Father is seeking more worshipers. So we have a job to do. We have a mission. Folks, you can rest later in heaven. 
We have work to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the challenge that your word is to our lives and to my heart, my life. Father, I thank you that you are not finished with us. You're not finished with me. You're still growing us and shaping us and molding us into the image of your son, causing us to become more like Jesus Christ. And, And Father, I pray that as we have gone through this text here this morning, I pray that we'd be convicted and challenged and encouraged. And Father, I pray that we would be bold in our witness, that we'd reach out to our neighbors. Father, I pray that you would break down those walls of of fear, of embarrassment to go across the street or across the aisle at work or wherever it may be, people that we've had a relationship but we've never talked to about the gospel or you. Pray that we would be bold to talk to them this next few weeks, that we would invite them, that we would be the same as the Samaritan woman and just say, come and see. Come and hear. Father, I look forward to, to that service. I look forward to even of the ministry of the choir that's putting in hours of work that through the song and through those words that your gospel will be proclaimed, that people would see and hear and understand why, why we're different, why this is special to us, that we can come and worship together. I pray through all of this, God, that you'd be honored and glorified. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.